This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We're studying the book of Hebrews this year on Office Hours, and we're up to chapter 7, verse 18. The theme of Hebrews, Jesus is really better. Joining us today is Dr. Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve has taught at Westminster since 1982 and is the author of several articles to Greek grammars, and he's a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. And he's working on a commentary on Ephesians right now. All these that are published are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Always a pleasure. We're at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and following. So we'll just dive right in. For on the one hand, it says, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. And then verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What kind of contrast is the author the pastor, the preacher, setting up here in verses 18 and 19. This is a section that really begins in verse 11. I know you've covered that, but uh, you didn't cover it with me. (laughs) Therefore, I want to bring our listeners back to verse 11. Let's get the overview first and then to the specifics. The overview is he's, throughout the book, dealing with people who are willing to substitute sacrifices through Levi for the sacrifice of Christ. And throughout the book, he's been dealing with this. Now he's dealing with it in particular. And he's showing how the Levitical priesthood could not bring, through those sacrifices, actual forgiveness of sins. And he's showing how God's revelation already implants the notion of Levi's obsolescence. He will pass away. And that's where, in 11, he says, now the first covenant the people of God were founded upon the Levitical priesthood, but if that were permanent, why would after that, so after Moses comes David, and in David you have testimony to a priest who will arise after the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110 of David. And he says, well, why would there be another priest arising if the first priesthood was itself the permanent effective one dealing with sins? Why would we need another one after the order of Melchizedek? And then, of course, he talks about Christ coming from Judah. His priesthood is not according to the law. And this really is what leads directly into verse 18. In verse 15, Christ's priesthood arises not because of bodily descent, as our version very happily puts it. So Christ does not derive being a priest because he's genealogically connected to Levi. It is a a separate qualification that he has, which is better and permanent. And he says in 16, the power of an indestructible life. And then he brings his witness to Psalm 110. So the context here is the weakness and uselessness of the law. And when people hear that, they think, oh, well, the Ten Commandments are really no longer valid for us. This is not at all what he's saying. This is just not correct. It's not correct because in the context, he's not dealing with the law as Ten Commandments. He's dealing with the law as it establishes a priesthood for the covenant constitution of the people of God. And under the law, the priesthood was Levi. So the best thing to do at this point, I think, is to turn ahead to chapter 9. 
at the very beginning. Let me go ahead and read a few verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place, etc. These are the regulations for worship. And when he talks about the law in verse 18 of chapter 7, and it being weak and useless and not perfecting anything, he's talking about those regulations of worship that are types. In themselves, they have no effectiveness. As they point people to Christ, they are sufficiently effective for eternal redemption. But the basis of the eternal redemption for all of God's people from Adam until the end of the world is always the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So in verse 18, when the pastor says the former commandment was nullified, he's thinking of more than a single law. He's thinking of a whole complex, a whole system associated with Moses and what he calls the Old Covenant. Yes. Again, chapter 9, verse 1, regulations for worship. It's the whole regulations for worship. It's why in verse 18, you really have to go back to verse 11. It's the regulations of worship that govern the Levitical sacrifices and the genealogical connection of the priests through Levi. So the regulations set up a succession of priests, which are necessary because the priest is ordained, he serves, he dies. So you have to have someone succeed him. That's what the law did. But in itself, it had no value for removing guilt in itself. So this is why we talk about the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, and we distinguish, and we think Scripture implicitly distinguishes between the civil laws under Moses, the ceremonial laws, the kinds of laws that you're describing, and the moral law, because the moral law is grounded in creation, and it gets articulated again under Moses in the Ten Commandments in a typological way that looks forward to Christ— but it's still the moral law. But the civil law and the ceremonial laws don't have that kind of permanence because they're not grounded in creation. They serve a very specific function. Is that fair? That's exactly right. And when people hear the term ceremonial law, I think the thing that's most helpful is we're not talking about ceremonies, that somehow ceremonies are bad or temporary or weak and useless. Rather, you should think of ceremonies as concentrated in the sacrificial system. I sometimes use the term substitutionary mediation laws, ones that deal with the heart of how one gains access to God. And those were types at the time, when I say those, the regulations for worship, the Levitical priesthood. And in Hebrews, the main focus is always on the Day of Atonement sacrifices. That's where he invariably ends up because that's where guilt is dealt with under the types. And he says those things in themselves cannot bring removal of guilt. They can only bring reminder of sins year by year for a number of reasons. And right here in verse 18 and following, he's showing how Christ did not come as a type. We're not dealing with someone who is like Levi anymore. We're dealing with the reality that all those types pointed to. He is the original reality that made those types look like what they did. And when he came into human history as the incarnate son, he fulfilled them in a once-for-all act which replaces those ceremonial laws in the sense of the sacrificial system. This is why Christians today don't go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. Now, of course, the temple's not there, but if it were, we still wouldn't go. Because it's done. 
It's done. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. To make his point, the pastor uses two adjectives because of its weakness and its uselessness. Two ways of translating those adjectives. Those are pretty strong adjectives for describing the ceremonies or the religious rituals designed to point to Christ and the laws, the civil laws, that also pointed to Christ. Those are fairly strong adjectives. Elaborate on that a little bit. It's elaborated in verse 19 as it goes on. For the law made nothing perfect. So he's saying they're weak or ineffective and useless in themselves. For they themselves did not bring perfection. Now perfection is a very difficult term in English. The author of Hebrews uses that whole word group in just one way. He's using it as he read in his Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that term comes up with two meanings from the Old Testament. One, it refers to the qualification for a priest to perform his office. It's really sometimes translated ordination. And it comes from an idiom which would be woodenly rendered, fill the hands. It's fillingness or fullness, you know, provide filling. Filling his hands with a sacrifice so the priest can offer sacrifice. And the second meaning is to qualify the worshipers to go in with the priest symbolically because the high priest on the Day of Atonement goes in bearing the names of Israel in his breastplate. They go in into the very presence of God because they have received this consecration through the sacrifice that he provides the priest, and they draw near to God. And that's where 19 takes you, verse 19, that Christ provides the way that we draw near to God, because that's where perfection takes you in the sense of qualified to enter the presence of God. We draw near to God. So through Levi, without Christ, he could not bring anybody near to God through his sacrifices. He could because he pointed to Christ so that there was sufficient revelation of Christ through Levi at that time, that it wasn't weak and useless at the time. But now, in contrast, It has reached its fulfillment. It's an empty husk. The grain has appeared, and you're not going to deal with the husk anymore. Okay, and that's what I was getting at. So thank you for for explaining that, because it could give the impression, or one could come away with the impression, that it was never of any value, and that's not what Hebrews is about. It was of value at the time, but it's not of value now, except as a literary reminder. You have a wonderful, healthy snack in a tremendous wrapper. Once you take the wrapper off, it's the snack you're interested in, not the wrapper. You throw the wrapper away because you have the thing inside the wrapper. And Jesus is the reality. He's He's come, and he's the fulfillment. And so to go back to that is to miss the real thing, the thing to which all those sacrifices and all those rituals, as valid as they were under Moses, it's to miss the very thing to which they were pointing. And... If you continue on in Hebrews, one of the things that I said at the beginning of the section in my earlier time with you is you have to remember that Hebrews from chapter 1 through most of chapter 13 is really just one thing. He's really just doing one sermon. He's not picking up different issues and changing the topic. It's still always developing the same points. And he's going to take you that way into chapter 11 and into 12, where he points out that the Old Testament saints saw these very things from a distance and welcomed them and confessed them so that they now surround us as a great cloud of witnesses testifying to Jesus. And he's talking about the Old Testament saints. 
they saw Jesus from a distance, and they now testify to us and speak to us of Jesus. So if you want to go back to the old-time religion, go to Jesus. That's what Moses and Aaron and Levi would tell you. So those evangelicals who don't see Jesus in the Old Testament are reading him out of the place where Hebrews says he was. Absolutely. If somebody were to say that, they need to read Hebrews. (laughs) But people do say that all the time, that the Old Testament really is only about national Israel, and some people have even implied that Jesus' coming was to facilitate the consummation of a national covenant, and when that was rejected, then salvation through Jesus becomes a sort of plan B, and it's even been said that to see Jesus revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures is a kind of anachronism. But you're saying, according to Hebrews, that's exactly wrong, that the whole function of the Hebrew Scriptures was to point to Jesus and to point to the built-in obsolescence of the Old Covenant, the inferior covenant. When we come back after this break, I want you to talk about verses 20 through 22, the oath, and what it means that we now, we Christians, are heirs of a better covenant right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Why, Steve, in verse 20, does Hebrews invoke Psalm 110 and the oath again? What's important about the oath to make his case about the superiority of the new covenant? In Hebrews 7, 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 28, he's developing the three qualifications that the incarnate Son has as high priest, which makes him better, permanent, and effective. And in verse 16, he uses this phrase, Christ has his priesthood on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. The adjective indestructible is a very interesting adjective. You think of him invoking Christ's resurrection as proof of that. Instead, he points to Psalm 110.4, Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he doesn't quote the oath there. He just says, for it is witnessed of him. Now, that last point before the break, the witness in Psalm 110 is of Christ. So you have the Father speaking to the incarnate Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or maybe even the pre-incarnate Son making a promise. Of course, yes, that's right. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that Psalm 110 is a uh, father-to-son communication that we're privileged to listen to. And that's the basis of his indestructible life. God has said he will be a priest forever. You can't change that. God guarantees with his own life Christ will forever be priest, so his life is indestructible. Now in verse 20, he shows the 
ultimate security of that in the oath. Let me just mention the third point. So the first basis of Christ's superior high priesthood is his indestructible life. The second is the oath. And the third one is his utter perfection morally so that he needs no separate sacrifice for himself. And that's verse 26 and following. He's separate, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So he has moral qualifications that no other human being has. Which is really important with respect to the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. Absolutely. Some say that Jesus had to obey in order to qualify himself to be our atonement. That's out of accord with Hebrews. But Hebrews here... And other scriptures is saying that, no, he came not to qualify himself, That's right. but to obey for us as our representative well, and to fulfill for us. And verse 20 really bears on that as well, 20 through 22. So he didn't come to qualify, he came to fulfill an oath that was made before all time. So when God swears, there's a covenant. That's the first thing to note. Where you have an oath, you have a covenant. And a covenant is an oath-bound commitment between two or more parties. This oath is between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We only really hear about the Father and the Son here, but there is an implication of the Spirit. We call that the covenant of redemption. Usually use the Latin phrase, pactum salutis. And the reason we prefer that is pactum in Latin communicates that it's a compact between equals. It's not some, you know, the Father ordering the Son to do something he's unwilling to do. Because the Son volunteered to do certain things for us. Right. So this means that the whole history of salvation is an outworking of this covenant between the Father and the Son, which means that all of redemptive history is covenantal, right? And Scripture is covenantal. And and the reason I emphasize this is because, again, some of our evangelical brothers and sisters would say, well, covenant is a, you know, it's a word that occurs in Scripture, but you can't read that into the Bible. And here we're seeing Hebrews making not only extensive extensive use of the idea and theme of the covenant, but structural use of it, fixing on Psalm 110 verse 4, when you see the oath between the Father and the Son. Right. Let me go ahead and read the passage. I'm going to be providing my own translation here and explaining as I go. But once you just read this passage over and over and see exactly what he's doing, you see that that oath provides the thing that you have to get out of Hebrews, and that is assurance of your complete pardon in Christ, that by faith alone, through his grace, the rich provision of our triune God for our full salvation in Jesus is guaranteed by the life of God. He has taken an oath that he will accept the Son's intervention on our behalf forever to effectively save us, which is where Hebrews takes you in verses 23 through 25. But let's go 20 to 22. He starts with a double negative. A double negative means, and insofar as is not without an oath, which you just put that positively. Insofar as the Son's high priesthood and his ministry forever his indestructible life and priestly intervention for us is with an oath. To that extent, now go down to 22, to that extent, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. See, that's that's how you read this text to begin with, is you just see where he's taking you as kind of an overview. So that Christ has his oath undergirding his priesthood, therefore he guarantees the effectiveness of this 
better covenant ministry that his priesthood establishes. Now he gives the contrast, whereas Levi, you know, those others, so the multiple Levitical priests, didn't have this kind of oath-taking. That's the end of verse 20. Whereas he has this oath-taking through the one who says to him, it's very interesting that he reads Psalm 110 as, you know, God is not talking to David. He's talking to the Son who would become incarnate and fill this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, Jesus quotes this same psalm, earlier verse, and says, how can David say of his son, the Lord says to my Lord? How can David call his son his Lord? To prove that it really is talking to him. You know, Jesus understands that the Father is speaking to him, which is correct, obviously. <laughs> I think everything. <laughs> Jesus says is correct, actually. <laughs> so in verse 22 now, this is the only time you have this term guarantor of a better covenant. We've picked this up in our confessional terminology, and we use it frequently, and I think it's absolutely right. He brings the new covenant realities into effect by his high priestly intervention. His substitutionary mediation is effective, and that's what this term guarantor means. He's a surety. He's the one who makes sure that it is accomplished, and he does it by himself, of himself. He does it for us. On the basis of which, the Christian who has trusted in Jesus as his high priest and his sacrifice and as his mediator may and should, can, have confidence. Absolute confidence. Absolute, rock-solid confidence that he is accepted by God. Right which is huge. Earlier, you mentioned that the high priest went in to conduct his work with representation of Israel on his breastplate. The 12 names were inscribed on 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest. So the atonement that he was making was not hypothetical, and it wasn't universal. It was intentional, and it was particular. So that when Jesus comes, he doesn't lay down his life abstractly to make salvation possible for those who do their part, he lays down his life in fulfillment for his sheep, for his sheep to accomplish redemption. I call my sheep by their name. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So it's not theoretical, it's not universal, it's not abstract, and it's not conditioned upon my doing my part. What you come away with certain here is where Hebrews takes you in verses 23 to 25. The many priests were prevented by death from enduring, but he remains forever because he holds a priesthood which is unchangeable. It, it cannot change. God is guaranteed with an oath that he is a priest forever, and God would have to die, which is utterly impossible, absolutely impossible, for that not to be true anymore. So the life of God is the guarantee of verse 25. For this reason, he is able to save to the complete end, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. And it's because he ever lives to intercede on their behalf. He's alive forever as a high priest. His priestly once-for-all sacrifice, God is guaranteed by oath. He finds sufficient for the sins of every one of his people, every single sin, no matter how heinous and awful and sinful it is. God is guaranteed by oath that he finds his son's sacrifice acceptable to cover it completely and his son's righteousness utterly acceptable. Now you go to Hebrews 9.14, where the outcome of this and elsewhere in Hebrews is 
that we may have our consciences cleansed, that we may serve the living God. So now we serve in gratitude. Now we're alive, no longer engaged in dead works, to live righteous lives in gratitude because we have nothing to earn by our works except the approval of our Father who says, I accept these tokens of thanks to me only for Christ's sake. Not for anything that is intrinsic to them or even anything that's necessarily a spirit wrought in them. Absolutely. Just to verify, validate what you were saying earlier about the confessions, I did a quick search on the handy-dandy Westminster Seminary California iPhone app that has all the Reformed confessions and Catholic creeds and other documents. I did a quick search of the word surety, and uh, it comes up in a a number of places, including the the Canons of Dort in the Second Head of Doctrine, Westminster Confession, Chapter 8, Section 3, Larger Catechism, the Geneva Catechism in a couple of places. So you're exactly right when you say that this is something that the Reformed churches have confessed on the basis of Hebrews, among other places. Westminster Larger Catechism, I think it's 157. It's on justification, and it's really worth our listeners hearing that one. Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepteth the satisfaction from a surety which he might have demanded of them, and did provide this surety, his own only Son, imputing his righteousness to them and requiring nothing of them for their justification, but faith which is also his gift. Their justification is to them of free grace. That's a very powerful answer. And part of it is that answer weds Paul and Hebrews. Paul has a doctrine of justification rooted in the sacrifice of Christ, but he doesn't develop it. Very few times, I'm thinking particularly of Romans 3, is present in Romans 5 and 8. It's there, he talks about the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ being the basis of justification, but he doesn't really show how that works very often. Hebrews does at great length. So you bring the two together and you get that answer. Because you'll notice it's the sacrifice of the surety and then also the righteous actions of the surety imputed to us. Hebrews would agree entirely with utilizing what he's teaching in harmony with what Paul's doing when he talks about justification. The temptation that we face always, of course, is to turn away from the one finished sacrifice, the one surety, and the better covenant to go back to the now weak and useless and inferior covenant. Of course, that's what Hebrews gets to in in 23 through the end of the chapter when it says the former priests under Moses then were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. By contrast, Jesus was not prevented by death from continuing in office because he was raised. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save them to the uttermost who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And there's so many inferences we could draw here. I mean, of course, Hebrews knows nothing about any other mediators or intercessors. No saints, not the blessed mother of our Lord, only Jesus. 4.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, as we were discussing, and then for those of the people 
people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As we close, talk a little bit about what it means to say that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, and he himself has been made perfect forever. How does that encourage us? This is the foundation of all of our confidence. Guarantor means he brings it into full effect, and he did it as someone who intervened and performed what we cannot do for ourselves. He performed both the righteous demands of the law upon us, his righteousness is given to us as a free gift, as well as he paid the penalty for all of our transgressions so that he is a son who lives forever as high priest on our behalf. He will always be our high priest. We will always come to the Father through the incarnate Son, who is our high priest. Now, this term perfected forever, again, you have to understand that Old Testament background to that term perfected. It's the same thing we discussed earlier. It means qualified to fulfill priestly office. It doesn't mean that he was morally defective. He denies that. He says in verse 26, he never had any stain or guilt of sin. He's separated from sin and sinners in his utter holiness. However, he had to be made perfect. Now, that means he had to be qualified to be a high priest for human beings. And part of that perfection he's explained in chapter 2, where he says he had to be made like us in every way, blood and flesh, so that he might be a sympathetic high priest and be qualified to intervene for us as one who sympathizes. So we have a high priest who came to us with a divine guarantee that his priestly sacrifice would always be valuable, would always be effective, would always be utterly all we need, and he brought it to pass. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.